This morning we're going to return to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. is where we'll be today, after about a month away from that. We've spent this past month thinking about elder nominations, as you know. And um, those nominations are closed now, so I'll tell you, we've had six men nominated to be elders. So you have, who have nominated, thank you for those thoughtful nominations. And I'm following up with those six men now to kind of set the agenda for the weeks to come as we, we prepare to do some training together and study together. And um, just so you know, we're, our intent with that, somebody asked me last week, are we replacing elders who are, are going to retire from being elders? Is that why we're doing this? And the answer is no, we're not doing that. Our six current ruling elders on our session are, are not planning to retire, uh, not that they've told me anyway. And uh, some of them may take a, a sabbatical, perhaps, but they plan to remain as ruling elders, and we'd like to add to that number uh, because of the need and because God has provided men among us for that purpose. And so we anticipate late in the spring, before the summer, I would expect uh, holding elections and, Lord willing, electing uh, two, perhaps three of these men to serve as elders on our session. So just so you know, that's the plan. So for these past four weeks, we've been looking at the, the book of 1 Timothy to consider elders. And, and there, Paul writes to Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And that certainly is true. And yet, there are some things to fear, falsehoods in particular. And it's to those things that Jesus turns our attention to falsehoods that can separate you from the hope of the gospel. So Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than, than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us again today to understand and to see we pray that you would give us your spirit so that we can see. We pray that you would move among us and in us and make us new. Father, give us faith, strengthen our faith, convert us and, and 
recreate us, make us new in your image. And Father, persuade us of your love and convict us of our sin. Show us our idols and demonstrate to us your truth. We pray that you would do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. In Luke chapter 11, where we were about four or five weeks ago or so, Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to dinner. He was invited to come and be a a dinner guest in this Pharisee's home, presumably with some other similar folks, Pharisees, uh, along with this gentleman. And Jesus accepted the invitation. And Luke tells us there in chapter 11 that this particular Pharisee, the host, was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. That just kind of got under the man's skin. He couldn't believe that Jesus wouldn't wash his hands before dinner. Now, this was not the kind of washing that you and I would do before dinner. This was not to get rid of germs, but rather to get rid of defilement. It was a ceremonial washing that was somewhat customary, certainly among the Pharisees to do, and Jesus did not do it. And so this man wondered about it, and Jesus, reading his mind, I suppose, recognizing his his appalled facial expression explained himself. And he criticized the man and his Pharisee friends. He criticized their tendency to enforce petty spiritual regulations. Things like, he specified, their practice of tithing, of giving. Interestingly, he, he attacked that. And he said, you tithe to the details, down to the extent of the the leaves of the herbs that you grow in your garden. You tithe precisely to the tenth so that you don't miss anything. Rather than generosity, you're legalistic. And so Jesus warns them that such legalism leads one away from God. These Pharisees, their their practice of their so-called faith had led them to miss the true faith completely. And one of them says that he's insulted. He tells Jesus, Teacher, when you say these things to us, you insult us all. They're insulted that Jesus would say these things. And apparently word got out about this conflict between spiritual religious heavyweights, I guess. And and now we see in chapter 12, thousands of people had gathered together, Luke tells us, trampling on one another even, like a concert crowd, giddy with excitement. They've, they've gathered together, thousands of them out in the countryside, they've gathered together, presumably expecting to see a fight between religious heavyweights. They, they've, the word has gotten out, and now the crowd wants to know, who is this man who's willing to go toe-to-toe with the spiritual and religious powers of our day? And so Jesus draws his disciples together here and and he says to them, as it were, notice, guys, what we have around us. To our right, we have the Pharisees who are requiring spiritual hoop jumping of themselves and of everyone else around them. And so leading people away from God. And to our left, we have these crowds, thousands of people who are eager to, to see us and hear us and to know what we're about. In a sense, they're offering a trendy popularity 
which Jesus knew would become a law unto itself. And it might be that the disciples themselves were tempted to grasp at their rising fame by association by giving in to the fear of man. And so Jesus says in so many words here, the gospel frees you from being afraid by teaching you to properly fear. He exhorts his disciples to fear not here in these words because God the Father loves them and yet there are some things that they should fear. Falsehoods, which if held, would separate them from God himself. For one, be afraid of pursuing a false righteousness. Be afraid of pursuing a false righteousness. He began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is yeast, of course. And whenever leaven or yeast is used as an illustration in the New Testament, most of the time it's generally used to illustrate something evil, something corrupt, a problem. And as yeast or leaven does, a tiny amount affects a large area. You know, a little bit of of yeast in the lump of dough swells it into a large loaf of bread. And that's exactly what's happening here. But what is the leaven of the Pharisees? Jesus tells them it's hypocrisy. Beware of, be afraid of hypocrisy. Of pretending to be what you are not. Whether that is to impress God or to impress people, either way, hypocrisy is an act. It's a mask. It is a false righteousness. It's a presentation of yourself as something that you're not. Like the fig leaves in the Garden of Eden, that's exactly what was happening there at the very early stages of redemptive history. A false righteousness. And it's so flimsy, it's so clumsy that it fails to cover us up at all. I heard a story of a a man who was a drunk routinely and his wife had wearied of him returning home drunk late at night. And on one particular night he was returning home yet again drunk and he knew his wife would already be in bed asleep. As he approached the house he stumbled in his drunkenness and he fell into the holly bushes at the front porch and scratched up his face. And he made his way into the house and he he knew, he was aware enough of himself that he had some scratches on his face. He thought, I need, to, I need to hide these scratches so that my wife doesn't know in the morning. And so he made his way to the bathroom and he found a box of Band-Aids. He looked into the mirror and he carefully placed a Band-Aid over each scratch. He thought, my wife will never know now. The next morning, he woke up. His wife was standing at the foot of the bed with her arms crossed, furious with him. She said, you were drunk last night. And he said... No, I wasn't. And she said, then who put the Band-Aids on the mirror? (laughs) Such is hypocrisy. It's the same thing. It's, it's It's a false righteousness attempting to cover up what we want to hide. And it doesn't even cover it up. So be afraid of such false righteousness because verse 2 Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on 
the housetops. I don't know if that's a literal thing. I think Jesus is simply saying, look, God knows who you are. He, he sees behind the band-aids. He recognizes the scratches. He knows what's there. I mean, does that make you kind of nervous? In our day and age, people often wonder, what does the government know about me? Maybe worse than that, what does Google know about me? They're the ones who know stuff. What do they know about the government that the government doesn't want them to know? Is Alexa listening to my conversations in the living room? I wonder that sometimes. I don't talk to Alexa very often. Are Russian hackers persuading you to vote for candidates that you wouldn't otherwise vote for? I mean, information and knowledge are, are the center of intrigue in our world, aren't they? Who knows your secrets? I saw something recently that Walgreens is a, a, a convenience store that's conducting a trial with some technology in their drink coolers. When you go to the, the drink cooler, you open up the cooler and you peruse the cold drinks to see what you might want to drink that day. There are micro cameras in there filming your face because they want to know what you're thinking. And the camera is smart enough to to evaluate your demographic, whether you're a man or a woman, a, a grown-up or a child, whether you're black or white or brown, whether you're content with the choices you see before you or not. Now, these smart coolers can read your face, but they can't read your soul. God can read your soul. He knows what's there. Nothing is hidden from him at all. One day we'll be shown to be what we really are, but meanwhile we're tempted to pretend. Why? Why are we tempted to pretend in hypocrisy? It's because we value the opinions of people more than we value the opinions of God. We care more about what each other thinks of us than about what God himself thinks of us. And why is that a problem? I mean, why is Jesus so concerned about that here? Because hypocrisy reveals in the heart the first and greatest evil that can be. Think about it this way for a moment. What is hypocrisy but a lie? Hypocrisy is telling a lie about yourself by your actions or your countenance or, or the way that you present yourself. It's telling a lie. It's presenting yourself to be what you're not. And why are you tempted to tell a lie about anything? At any point, whether it's lying to your spouse about why you came home late last night or lying about why you forgot to call the newspaper to cancel it before you go out of town. It might be just a petty little thing. Why are you tempted to lie? It's because in that moment, there is something more important to you than the truth. In that moment, there's something more important to you than God himself. It might be that you just want to avoid a consequence. Or maybe you want to avoid the failure of your image. Or maybe you want to preserve someone's impression of you. Whatever it is, there's something that's more important to you than anything else. And so you're willing to tell a lie to protect it. And it's idolatry. What was the first commandment that God gave to the Israelites in the wilderness through Moses? The the very first of the Ten Commandments. What did God say? You shall have no other gods before me. And when we engage in hypocrisy, we're placing a God before God. It's false righteousness. It's idolatry. At that dinner party in chapter 11, Jesus 
assaulted the man's hypocrisy. He said, You Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools, he said to them, did not God who made the outside make the inside also? If your inside doesn't match your outside, then you should consider carefully what you should fear. It might be that you are trusting a false god. And this too should make you afraid. Verse 4. I tell you, my friends, he's speaking to his disciples, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Don't be afraid of people. Because when you fear people and you fear what they can do, whatever it may be, you're making them out to be gods and those gods are false. You know, we, in our day, in our place here in Dallas, Texas, we don't typically, I think, concern ourselves with the thought that someone might seek to kill our bodies because we are disciples of Jesus. That's not something we wake up in the morning typically thinking about. There are people in the world who do. But we do fear how people might harm our reputation. We are concerned about that, and so we shape our actions accordingly, and This makes those people out to be a god to us. And why do we trust in false gods? Why do we do that? It's because we haven't understood the true God. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, We fear people so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. In other words, if we properly fear God, then we won't fear people. A proper fear of God will cure your fear of people, but often as not, we've just not understood God. We don't fear God because we don't understand who He is. We have a false God. We believe falsely that He is not a judge. We expect that. We assume that. We think that. Verse 5, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him who, after He has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And Jesus is talking about God the Father. There's no question about who he's talking about here. And he doesn't even hesitate to explain the true God is a true judge. He has the power and authority to harm more than just your body. He has the power and authority to harm your eternity. But that's not widely accepted in our world. Of course, in in the society in which we live, the workplaces where you go every day are not inclined to think of any God that way. People want to shape a God after their own image and assume, well, my God, he's not a judge or she's not a judge. Whatever my God is, is not a judge. Maybe your God is. We create false gods all the time. I read an article recently, just kind of a blog article. Its title was Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. And this particular author explained her own childhood, alluded somewhat to her own extremely, in her testimony, hypocritical parents who were very religious and very demanding of her and her brother in all sorts of ways. And so I can understand the danger of hypocrisy often is that it leads those who watch you away from the truth of the gospel. And she now explained how with her own two daughters, she's 
trying to raise them without the concept of sin. She doesn't want them to think in terms of sin at all. And so she's created self-made rules. And she said, as long as my my daughters grow up uh, loving people, being thoughtful of other people, doing some good for the world, then they don't need to know about sin. But what she doesn't realize is that she's creating her own Ten Commandments. Who's going to be the judge if her daughters don't grow up to fulfill her expectations? They're going to sin against her, and she's going to recognize it. Inevitably, you can't escape a standard determined by someone who will judge. The disciples of Jesus grew gradually in their understanding of exactly who this man was they were dealing with. And on that moment on the lake, the Sea of Galilee, when the storm brewed up and and Jesus calmed the storm. It's an interesting moment because Jesus demonstrates his authority to command the creation. And the disciples, when they saw that, were terrified. They didn't come up and give Jesus a high five and say, way to go, Jesus, good job. Wish we could do that. They backed away and said to each other, who is this man? They were afraid. They were in a boat in the middle of the lake with this man who evidently had the authority to command creation. If he has that authority, then surely God the Father has the authority to judge his creatures. We believe falsely that God is not a judge, but we also, on the other hand, believe falsely that God is not gentle. Don't miss that part. Verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What's he saying? What's he saying here? He's saying believe in God and find rest in his gentle hands because he knows you and he values you. Joseph de Simoji was a professor in Hungary a university professor during the 1930s, 1940s. And he was a Lutheran man who was an expert in the Semitic languages, Hebrew. And he was a professor of that at the university as Nazism began to swarm into Hungary. And as the story goes, Dr. Disamoji, a Christian, was bold enough to leave his Hebrew Bible sitting on top of his desk at the university. And sometimes his colleagues would stop by and see, see through the door there his Hebrew Bible. And he, they would stop and they would say, Dr. Samoji, that's Jewish. And he would say, yes, it is. It's, in fact, it's the most Jewish of all Jewish things. And they would warn him, that's, that's risky to leave that on your desk. The authorities don't like that. And at one point, a policeman showed up at his office door and saw the Bible on his desk and warned him. He said, Doctor, I'm going to come back this evening with other officers and we're going to arrest you. I would advise you to disappear. And so he did. He disappeared into the countryside for some time. He went into hiding. And eventually Nazism passed in Hungary, but the Soviet Union moved in and took over. And he... um, found out that his name was on the, the watch list of those who could be sent to Siberia because they were a threat to the, the authorities of the Soviets. And so he began to apply for a visa to leave the country. 
to travel to Austria. And he was denied that visa again and again because his name was on the list. So he finally decided that he would go and visit the office where the visas were, were uh, given out. And he went there, but he was so angry at what the Russians were doing to control his, his country. As he walked into that building, he decided, I'm, I'm not going to take the elevator. I'm going to go up the stairs because I need to blow off some steam. I'm angry, and I don't want to present myself as angry before the visa clerk. And he, he went into the stairwell and began to climb the stairs and... On the way down towards him, he met a former student of his who said, Dr. Samoji, I'm so glad to see you. What are you doing here? And he explained, I'm here to apply for a visa to leave the country. And, and the student said, well, my fiance is the one upstairs who grants the visas. I'll take you to see her. So he did. And she hesitantly granted the visa. Eventually, he ended up at Harvard University where he was a professor And years later, he would describe these situations in his life. And he would say, do you think it was an accident that that policeman showed up at my door that day and warned me? Do you think it was an accident that I, in anger, took the stairs that day and ran into that student of mine who led me up to his fiancée who granted me the visa? I would have never got that visa. Do you think it was an accident? No. He said, even the hairs of my head are numbered. My God gently takes care of me. In that Old Testament reading you heard earlier from Isaiah 51, the kingdom of Israel is crumbling all around because of the Israelites' love of falsehoods. And so these are some of the things God says to them in those those words of Isaiah. The Lord calls out to their attention. He says, listen to me, you who know righteousness. He's speaking to his people. You You know righteousness. You have my law in your heart. Listen to me, he says. Don't be afraid of the reproach of man. Men will die. But my righteousness will be forever. He says, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Do you not know who I truly am? That you fear man who dies? He says, you've forgotten the Lord your maker. I stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear men? That's what Isaiah says to his people. When you see and fear God for who he truly is, then all other fears begin to fade. You know, we sing that to each other. Amazing grace. It's one of our favorite hymns. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And what? Grace my fears relieved. Only knowing the grace of the true God can so relieve your fear. He is our judge, and yet he is our gentle father who knows us and loves us. But there's one other falsehood then to fear, and that is holding on to a false confession. Verses 8 and following. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What's what's Jesus saying here? 
He's saying your confession of the Son of God will reveal the state of your heart. Remember here in this situation in Luke chapter 12, the the disciples are seeing what's around them. They're seeing over here the Pharisees on one side who are satisfied with their own false righteousness and even demanding it of other people. And so leading them away from God. And then they see on this side the crowds, the thousands of people who by virtue of their swarming numbers and their eagerness are implicitly offering a popularity and a fame, as it were, to these disciples. If only you will show us the God that we want. And neither one of those is a very good option for them, right? So how do you confess Christ before the world? That's the question the disciples are faced with at this moment. How do you confess your faith in this gospel before the world, with your words and even with your life, the way that you live? You know, you you might be a really effective and eager evangelist among the people that you know. Perhaps, perhaps you are. Most of us are not. But regardless... Do your words and does your life demonstrate that your confession of faith is in the righteousness of Christ? Do your words and do your life demonstrate that your confession of faith is that you rest in the righteousness of Christ? What does Jesus mean when he says here that one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God? And verse 10, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Is there actually an unforgivable sin? This is something that Christians often kind of wonder about because they hear that it shows up in Scripture. And the answer is yes. There is an unpardonable, an unforgivable sin sin, but it might not be what you sometimes fear that it is in your own guilty conscience. The name of our church actually will help you to understand it. New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church, we call it, for some different reasons. I think the the best reason is that the old St. Peter denied Jesus three times before men. Three times he denied Jesus before men. But the Holy Spirit confronted him, and the new St. Peter did not deny the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit came to persuade him of his guilt and to draw him back to his hope in Christ. So what about you? The old St. Peter who denies, or the new St. Peter who receives the Holy Spirit's testimony to him. That's what the unpardonable sin is, is ultimately denying the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit pursues you and persuades you and seeks to convince you. One, one may refuse that at some point. What, what about you? I mean, your confession before men may stumble and bumble and fall in your unsophisticated clumsiness. Maybe, maybe it does. But when the Holy Spirit beckons you to believe the gospel, do you ignore Him? Do you pretend that it just doesn't matter and you can just put that off 
until sometime in the future? Or do you show your confession to be true by yielding to his persuasive power? Jesus offers a really great hope here for those who do. In verse 8, he says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Have you ever had a, a brush with a famous person before? Or, or maybe you know a famous person. Maybe someone you grew up with became famous. My grandmother, in her, her later years, lived in an assisted living facility. And, and there in her apartment, she hung on the wall a framed letter that she had received from President Ronald Reagan. I don't remember the contents of the letter, exactly why she'd received it, but it was handwritten and it was signed by the president himself. And she was very proud of it. The president didn't know her. He wouldn't have known her if she had walked past him on the street or if she'd shown up at the Oval Office. He wouldn't have known who she was. I have an autographed baseball by Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw is one of the best pitchers in baseball today. Cy Young Award winner. Maybe one of the best pitchers ever in the game. I have have an autographed baseball by Clayton Kershaw. In fact, he went to my high school. I didn't go to his. He went to mine. I was there first. (laughs) But he doesn't know who I am. He wouldn't know who I was if I ran into him on the street. My wife, Mary, get this. She has an autographed photograph of Joe Namath, Broadway Joe, one of the great quarterbacks, a Hall of Famer in the NFL, New York Jets, and even the the Los Angeles Rams at the end of his career. This photograph is him in his Los Angeles Rams uniform on the playing field, and it's signed, Mary, stay sweet, Joe Namath. And he even drew a smiley face next to it. I mean... She has this autograph. I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't know it until 10 years into our marriage. I was like, where did this come from? <clears throat> but Joe Namath doesn't know her. He wouldn't know her if she screamed on the sideline and called out for his autograph. She wouldn't know who he was if he wouldn't know who she was if she knocked on his door. I mean, how validating would it be? If a powerful or important or famous person acknowledged you in public, what would that be like to you? It'd be, it'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? If Joe Namath knew who you were, if, if the President of the United States knew who you were. I mean, maybe on the outside you'd control yourself, but on the inside you would swell with pride because, you know, all my friends can see, hey, this important person knows who I am. This is the promise of a true and faithful confession. And we, we need to not miss this. And we need to not downplay it at all. Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before the angels of God. Do you want the Son of God, the Word by whom creation came into being, to call out your name before the world? Well done, good and faithful servant. I know you. You are mine then be faithful. Scoff at false righteousness. It is of no use to you at all. Refuse a false God when you see it. It will only lead you astray. 
and listen to the Holy Spirit that your confession may hold true. Fear not. God is greater than all the falsehoods that you see. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that you give to us your word and you give to us your spirit. I pray for all of us that we would not refuse your spirit when he speaks to our souls, that we would be quickly yielding to him and that we would recognize the falsehoods that we tend to love and turn away from them and turn instead to you to trust you for your good news in Christ. I pray that even as we come to these communion tables that you would use the bread and the wine to increase our faith to believe that you are here with us, that you love us, that you have called us by name and claimed us as your own. Father, would you make us to be strong because you're strong so that we might proclaim your name in our lives with our words and the way in which we live. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.